him, boy! He's sick, boy! Hello, I am breathing, and this is basically just a little introduction onto Andrew Yang's book, The War on Normal People. Um, so, this is a bit of an explanation. There are three parts in the book, and I'm going to explain the first part, which is very interesting, um, just in this video, because there is a lot to dig into. So basically, part one is an introduction into Andrew's young life, so when he worked at Venture for America, which is basically helping small businesses and startups in like rural and mid-America. don't know all these places, but um, I found it quite interesting because the problem, which is uh, Andrew Yang puts it as, which is automation and robots uh, threatening people's jobs will probably affect the whole world, really. But um, this is a little in-depth. Basically, I read it so you don't have to, and it's a bit of a quicker summary. So basically, uh, even though he has dropped out of the race, his ideas can still stay, and I found it, he, I found him very interesting because he was much more genuine than all the other politicians and the Democratic candidate. And for me, I personally feel the only true threat Trump had from the Democratic candidates was Andrew Yang because he kind of he actually knew what he was talking about. Whereas, and he f felt genuine when there's, you compare it to Elizabeth Warren who feels just fake and Bernie Sanders who oh I don't know he's just too old I need to change don't need just too many old people in politics so basically at the beginning of the book Andrew Yang is basically describing what he sees as normal Americans and when he was working with entrepreneurs um, he they he found that they felt guilty a bit for taking away so many people's jobs because automation has killed around 4 million jobs in the US alone and the US participation force is at 62.9% which is the same as Ukraine. Now, for example, Australia is at 65%. Um, that is because most developed countries have aging populations, mainly the baby boomers who are beginning to retire. So I would actually expect Australia's participation rate to drop in the next 10 years as all the boomers retire. Now, Andrew Yang also describes, uh, talks about, about economics and how the assertion of the fact of that the free market rewards business leaders for being efficient. Now I do economics, so I can 100% tell you, yes, that is true. The com big companies are rewarded for being efficient. The reason people invest in technology and more expensive robots in the short term is because in the long term they're more efficient and cost less. So cost efficiency, not only that, but like they can produce more and therefore you can sell more and make more money. Now, and so he kind of, he kind of disproves the fact, like in America it's very big that you don't it's frowned upon and seen as socialist if you intervene in the market. Now this isn't true, it means you're a mixed market economy, which is actually every economy in the world, because the military is technically a market intervention, not private militaries, no, we have a public government military. And so the, the theory of la I can't pronounce it, laissez-faire, laissez-faire theory, which is you let the market be, pretty much, 
um, which is the relationship between consumers, so people who buy stuff, and firms, which is big companies, and letting it just run free and it'll sort itself out, which isn't true because it caused the Great Depression and the GFC because there was not enough government regulation. And this is what sets up market failures, which basically means people, you know, left out of jobs, are unemployed because of the market. And then he goes on to address the problem of the financial crisis with 95 million Americans displaced in the workforce. And he addresses the GFC as the great displacement, so he labels it. And so basically, according to Andrew Yang, um, the great displacement had been building up building up and is still building up. So the economy and labour markets change in response to improving technology, financialization, and changing corporate norms and globalization. So basically he's, he goes back in time about 1970s how and compares it to now. So back in the 1970s people got jobs, they had got pretty good pensions, they got health care and they just stayed at one or two jobs their whole life. You know, they just worked at this office. It was a boring life, but you made, you had stable finances, and you, you got a good retirement fund. And so you got nice thick pensions, and in return for basically wasting your lives away at the bank. And back then, banks were local. They weren't, you know, the big corporate banks. They were, you had a local bank at your own town or city. You didn't have massive corporations as you do now. And so most countries now, you only have three to five banks to choose from. Like in Australia, you have the Commonwealth Bank, the NAB, ANZ, Bendigo Bank, and that's kind of the most choice you have. You might have some more, like, other ones, but basically most people stick with the biggest banks. And, or, who, by the way, have nice little tax loopholes for terrorists here in Australia and you've heard about the Royal Banking Commission basically if you have no idea what it means it's basically terrorists funded their money through those banks and the banks did nothing about it. Andrew Yang goes on to explain that it wasn't like the best life you could have but mm, people's salaries were growing and you didn't you know you didn't have super rich and super poor. Like right now, what we have is a big income gap between like middle class and bonk tied billionaires. And the reason America's average, you know, salary is like 60,000 is because of those multi millionaires. When in reality, if you take that big chunk of multi millionaires out, the actual real salary most people have goes down by 10 or 20,000 dollars, which is significant. Whereas in Australia, we do have millionaires, but they're not as you know, they're not multi-billionaires, and they're not, you know, well, they are pulling strings, you know how rich people be, but, like, not to the extent of America. Yeah, yeah. and he goes on to say that in 1990, all the banks were bought up. All the local banks were gone. They're gone. And he also now compares jobs. So the job market back then, so I think it was in... Okay. So basically Andrew Yang goes on to say that the jobs created in the US market are now temporary or contract jobs. So about 94% of all jobs created in the US are actually casual and temporary jobs with no pension and no, you know, healthcare. So they're poor paying jobs with little to no benefits. And so the jobs being made now are not only less 
then, so I think it was 46, no, 24% uh, of new jobs, were new jobs made in 1970s, so like, in that decade, you know, of the current amount of jobs, 24% was added, whereas now it's 4%. And these are all, almost all, contract or temporary jobs, meaning your job market's looking, have been just a salary man, it's becoming less likely and much more competitive than it was before. So now Andrew Yang basically goes on about companies now really want efficiency. They want to pump out those bad boy products, make them at cheaper prices so we can buy them and spend our money and make them wealthy. Because uh, because companies now have an incentive of increasing their share price. They see the sole value of their company dependent on the share price. This became triggered, according to Yang, um, due to the Financial Services Modernization Act of 1999 by Bill Clinton, which allowed big American corporations that could outsource manufacturing in China and Philippines in more, you know, poorer countries where the labor laws were much looser, allowing factories to move out, create cheaper products and ship them back to the States and sell them. And so by 2013, 14 million jobs are now outsourced in those countries. Now I'm just gonna okay so now I'm just gonna quickly interject with a little bit of my opinion take you I don't care what you think but basically for the Americans watching this and yes mostly Americans because Andrew kind of focuses on America here um, you might find this annoying you like oh, globalization or you know our jobs are going away. Well, first of all, you probably wanted more pay, so you did kind of drive the companies away, but I'm not, this isn't my, the big thing, but because of these big corporations outsourcing jobs from different countries, like China, India, Philippines, Thailand, you actually, even though you suffered a little, you helped lift those countries out of poverty. You've you, you supported those countries to become developing or developed nations. Like China has almost eliminated poverty and starvation compared to what it was in like 1980 where people, so many people are still in rural area and now people are educated in China, they're specializing, their jobs are, you know, they don't work on farms living a substance, substance life they're living, you know, like us. They're, they've, they've developed. They don't live in poverty. They live in nice cities. They have higher standards of living and income. And because of that, because of you, you might have lost a job. You have helped make other countries a much better place. So this isn't to say what you experienced wasn't bad. It does suck for you. But you, if I'm just putting a positive in here, you have actually made. It has made other people's lives better. You lost a bit, but other people's lives—they no longer starve. They had tough working conditions and paid very little. But because of that foreign money, those governments could build up their country's economy and make their country a much better place for more people to live will need these cheap jobs to continue to develop a nation's economy. And 
So it is exploited, and I am speaking from a privileged point of view, but because of one generation kind of having to suffer through those, that factory work and the cheap labour on it being exploited, it does, in the end, if their government is good, make their children's lives. Because their children, they save up that money they've gotten from foreign companies, save it and educate their children. Their children then specialise into doctors, lawyers, this is why Asian parents really want their kids to become doctors. But becoming in these specialised fields of work, and then they make much more money, bring in more, you know, start businesses and break that poverty cycle. And if automation will, if Andrew says this automation is going to really go through, it's going to really affect these developing nations that do require this cheap labour, even though it sucks for the people working, I do not deny it, I wish their living conditions were better. It's like, even if you look at Britain during the Industrial Revolution, one generation had to suffer, but they saved that m money for their kids' education, and the government brought in public education because of that money coming in, and lifted a whole generation of people out of poverty, they became educated, and they became wealthier, and had higher living standards. So that's something to think about. And just as a point of evidence, you can look at China, which is still undergoing it. I'd say probably two-thirds of the way there. Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, they're like done. Singapore, you know, these countries, factories, and now these countries have high standards of living. Uh, Hong Kong and Singapore have higher standards of living than America. Japan's up there, South Korea's up there, Taiwan's up there. And India and like the Philippines, they're like at the beginning process and if automation is going to happen, it's going to really have a negative impact on these developing nations. Anyway, <laughs> before I got distracted, also, Andrew Yang was going on about how jobs aren't created the same way. So 23% are increasing new jobs, now it's only 4%. Um, as an example, uh, Yang shows evidence like Amazon hires 341,000 people all over the world. And Amazon's like everywhere, and it's only 341,000. It's all over the world, yet there's only 341,000 people that actually work there. And if you look at Walmart, it has 1.6 million workers. So older companies sustain more workers. And, you know, actually boosts local economies as well, because they'll have fat, uh, big Walmart stores. And that boosts those local towns, whereas Amazon is just boosting the post-mail office, and that's about it. So another example, Airbnb, 3,100 people, and they're everywhere. And Hilton has 169,000 people. 169! <laughs> Okay, so go to the Hilton, support the local hotels, come on people. And basically, what the point of all this, according to Andrew, is, is to debunk the myth that jobs recreate themselves. Like in the Industrial Revolution, where the jobs disappeared, but they came back after a while. But, so, you know, like, the big machines required less people, they made it more efficient, and then there were new jobs, because people had education. But Andrew says, yes, but no. New jobs are being made, but they're just to a lesser extent, and for more specialised uni degrees, but even some specialised jobs are at risk. 
Now, so, as an Australia as an example, where I come from, Kalgoorlie, which is a big gold mine, um, currently use, I think, 71 trucks that are all automated. Instead of 71 workers that could have been driving trucks out of the ground, no. They're done by two people in a little room, and we have automated trucks driving up the gold. So, instead of 71 people being paid, only two people are being paid. Two jobs were created at the expense of 69. So, basically, Andrew's point is this theory that jobs recreate themselves is entirely false, as the technology we've reached has is more broad and can do specialised jobs and learn. That's the key point. It can learn, unlike at a faster rate than humans can, which is can threaten many kind of mundane jobs. And so now Andrew basically goes over who's at threat at automation. And he uses an example of when he met his friend David, who he thought he was emailing his receptionist. And then when he met David, he found out that that receptionist was actually just an algorithm that sounded like wrote like a human and scheduled it and basically replaced the receptionist job with just some algorithm. So, and it points out that there are jobs that we think are safe that are actually not. And he says, uh, well, I'm just going to say this, you should probably study business because they're the, <laughs> seem to be the only people that can profit out of automation. And so now he goes on to, to use some examples that jobs are at risk. So 40 million people work in sales and retail, and those are being replaced by self-serve machines. Instead of five cashiers, it's now one, one guy watching like 20 of those self-serve machines. And the same goes with um, office workers. He says, so a bit more white-collar jobs and all blue-collar jobs. So a lot of office jobs are customer service representatives, which are on the phone. With new AI development, there is a hybrid approach of an AI representative uh, of, on the phone. So basically, someone in the Philippines taps buttons and it has a voice of someone who sounds like a native speaker. So people, you know, you get that Indian like phone call and you immediately think it's a scam. So instead, they'll have pre-recorded voices and have someone just in the Philippines tapping those voices. But I feel like you'd be able to figure out it's not a human. But now what they're... So this is what they're implementing slowly, like in the Bank of Scotland. But um, what Andrew says over here, that eventually the AI will replace that Filipino, you know, pressing the buttons to just an AI algorithm that has learnt human responses and how to reply to it. Meaning customer service representatives' jobs are out. He also mentions fast food employees are at risk. So now I used to work at Macca's and the self for machines we had there were not great, but they are apparently getting more efficient and Andrew Yang says fast food employees are at risk of their jobs being lost. Now in Australia, I have a little temporary solution to this. In Australia we have a bit of a business culture where we buy local every now and then, even if it's more expensive, like five, ten dollars, we will just go and buy local. So like if I needed a new pencil case, instead of buying it online for like five bucks, I'll go and buy it at the local, you know, stationery store. 
maybe 15, but every now and then, not all the time, just like every now and then, and if everyone does that, just every now and then, we keep those local businesses alive, and that's one family being fed with a nice income, and we keep those shops open. And this works um, in mid-range, mid-sized towns, you know, not small towns, but like mid-sized towns, everyone does that, and business stays stays as usual and people don't lose their, lose their livelihoods. Because this is a bit of an economic theory where you spend $10 on a toaster, let's say, and that $10 becomes someone's wages, someone's, you know, and then that person who gets the wages could buy, you know, with that $10, buy a sandwich, you know, and it just keeps going, it just goes around and that and that's a circular flow of income and that kind of increases in value because people are getting items that they need and that's how we keep the economy going and Andrew also says mid-range restaurants aren't, at, aren't that much in danger of automation except if fast food gets much cheaper because of automation mid-range restaurants are a bit more at risk because of Blue Apron as well and more competitive, cheaper food prices will drive people away from mid-range restaurants, but they're not too much at risk of automation. However, he also says chefs are likely to lose their jobs as there is a BHEX robots, Chef 3D, which is fast, clean, and more reliable chef than human workers, and has already been implemented in stadiums and theme parks. So that's lovely. There are chefs that can probably cook better than you, which are robots. And not human, don't need to sleep, just might need a little bit of oil and electricity. Andrew Yang now mentions the two groups of employees most at risk of automation, and that is truck drivers and factory workers. So as I said, in Rio Tinto and Kalgoorlie Mines in Australia, we already have self-driving trucks. And Uber, Google and Tesla are also bringing out self-driving trucks that can entirely replace, he says, the trucking industry with its 12 million, no, and truck jobs, which are there are a lot of in America and contribute about $7 billion to the small town economies along the roads that trucks drive. Now, once you replace that with automation, people no longer spend because they don't need to sleep because it's a robot and they don't spend money. You, what Andrew says they will do is have first just tr trucks with a driver in it, but don't have to drive, which makes it more efficient, and then they will have convoys of trucks with just one guy at the front. So Andrew Yang then goes on to mention that there were 17.5 million manufacturing jobs in 2000 and now they're 15. A lot of jobs are missing and 4 million were approximately due to automate and 4 million were due to robots. Andrew Yang goes on to mention the social implications of having, you know, as 73% uh, of workers in manufacturing are men and men generally tend to be the worst people to be unemployed because men have different psychological needs where men need to be doing something and have a purpose in life right because women have you know one of their many purposes like career wise generally tends to be giving birth to children this is a biological trait and gives them purpose, you know, 
Of course having a child gives you purpose in life, you have something to look after. Whereas men, if they don't have if they don't have a job and something to work towards, there's no purpose in life. Why bother working? Why don't you just get drunk and do drugs and just not have a care in the world when there's no responsibility on your shoulders, right? So men are most at risk of automation. Like pharmacy, pharmaceuticals, you know, their jobs are at risk too, but are safe due to laws requiring, you know, sign-offs by pharmacists before drugs can be sold. And then Andrew goes on to do another to dispel the thought about what about re-educating these, you know, unemployed people. Now most of these people are 40 to 50 years old and so learning new things at that age is a little difficult. As well as 41% um, of those 5 million people who've lost their jobs um, were dropped out of the market or were still unemployed after losing their jobs, after five years, right? Still unemployed and there's, you know, shrinking job market. And then, not to mention, about 3% of them re-graduated from a college or university. So, re-education, the people just aren't after it and so they all claim disability benefits and rely on the social system for their income and can't work because what are you going to work on? There's nothing to... The one thing you've trained and specialised in, maybe turning bolts for a car or, you know, making this coloured paint, it's, it no longer exists. You're one thing you are better than than almost anyone in the world. And it's gone. And you meant to start from the bottom again. It's very difficult psychologically for those people. And I cannot blame them. And then Yang also mentions the social implications of losing the tracking industry as, you know, 17.5 billion to roadside communities will be lost. I'm pretty sure I only said 7.5 billion. And in Nebraska, 1 in 12 workers support the tracking industry. So Nebraska is going to be really hard hit with self-driving trucks, if that. And Andrew Yang also mentions that a lot of his entrepreneurial friends say in 2020 is the year of mass production and implementation of these self-driving trucks. So that's fun to look forward to. Remember, this is Andrew Yang saying, not me. I did mention some things that influence and like to comment on, but that's... I, what I've just said is Andrew Yang thanks. And according to Yang, almost no truck drivers are aware that their jobs are at risk and that's going to be a severe blow when these self-driving trucks are um, implemented all over the workforce. Now, the last section of people that are going to be affected by automation, according to Yang, are white-collar workers. So. If you look at stock market places across the world, probably 50 years ago, or not even that, like 20 years ago, there would be a floor covered with stockbrokers, heaps of people yelling at each other, all employed to buy stocks, make money. Now they're almost empty and it's just computers doing it with no human interaction whatsoever. I mean, they still are rich and make lots of money, these stockbrokers. They just have computers doing their job now. So don't feel too bad. 
Not only that, journalists are at risk of automation as writing algorithms have improved so much they will be able to process and write out information at readable and understandable ways that will play some writers, mainly journalists, jobs. Um, but Yang doesn't say this, but someone still needs to collect the information and I doubt journalists will be entirely replaced, but maybe the more their strenuous tasks will be done. Or gone off to a robot or an algorithm on their laptop. <laughs> and so you think white collar jobs, highly educated jobs are safe. No, 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 buddy. Buddy boy, how Andrew Yang's gonna prove you wrong this time? See, radiologists, they are, you know, experts in their field. Years and years of study. And general GE, I don't know what it, yeah. So GE invited doctors to, with decades of experience, mind you, to see whether they could diagnose tumours in a brain scan. And before the computers could. And basically, the computers won. Like, way before the doctors of, you know, all these professional doctors could, because they could see a slight hint of grey that is invisible to the human eyes. And Yang mentions we are entering an age of supercomputers that can do menial, complex, from menial tasks to complex tasks, legal precedents, they can go through heaps of legal precedents and legal laws and look at those loopholes, you know, just what those lawyers are after. Um, radiology, film, they can check asset prices, they can go through financial transactions, so accountants are at big risk of losing a lot of their jobs because they don't, they're not needed. Some algorithm can do it in seconds and minutes and, you know, just get as good as a report. Um, enhancing, honestly, some jobs. I feel like the lawyers are actually going to like this because we're still going to need probably humans to stand up and talk and represent people in court, but their jobs will just get heaps easy. Like, way easier, probably. And they could probably find out the loopholes and the laws much easier with all these you know, supercomputers just <laughs> ah, loophole and then they'll use it and then the government will like, loophole, let's get rid of that, you know? But animals are sure, if they did make robots good enough to replace lawyers all their disposable income will somehow fudge you know, that technology. I'm sure lawyers will not be out of a job soon. <laughs> and Andrew Yang also mentions machine learning, that computers are getting smarter and like having programmed to learn and we buy biologically cannot compete with these robots and so what do we do <laughs> these are the jobs that are threatened which make up huge portions of the global economy unless we're all like swimming instructors I don't think it's gonna work too well because robots you know one little wire and wet and they out and then Andrew Yang I I find this evidence quite important. Um, banking and share market jobs will, according to Bloomberg, shed out over time. Work in insurance, accounting, bookkeeping, bookkeeping, clerks, 39% of legal jobs are all under threat of automation. And according to Andrew, high-end teachers at MIT have said to him, most of medicine is cookbook and requires no imagination or innovation and is quite repetitive and is all under threat from automation. 
Um, so, a general practitioner, radiology, dermatology, and pathology. These are all professions that are at risk of being replaced with automation. And even artistic jobs, um, robots can do better. And another one they found, quite interesting I found, psychologists. As people prefer talking to robots, to humans, about their problems, and it's less confronting. <laughs> I got a point. They have a valid point there. Um, but Yang also does admit, because of the legal framework currently, um, regulations make it illegal to perform some surgeries and hand out some medicines without a doctor or pharmaceutical's approval. So they are, their jobs are somewhat coloured. And this is basically a glimpse overview of um, Andrew Yang's book. And there it goes on a bit how... I'm going to just read this out. So, women are more safe in teaching and nurturing jobs as they are harder to automate, and that they suggest men take more feminine roles because that's easier said than done. And that's going against a certain career because the market looks back, and that doesn't dictate or demand such. He kind of lists human qualities that we humans already know, so I don't imagine this. And long-term employment is one of the most negative things that you can experience. So, um, women tend the more well, female roles women play in society and their jobs that they tend to go for are much harder to automate than men's jobs. So men are at risk more from automation than women are. So please stop complaining about the wage gap because men probably is going to their average is going to drop soon. If automation comes through, there's going to be a lot of unemployed. And that is basically the sum up of part one. There are three parts of Andrew Hand's book. If you want me to keep reading, just, I don't know, subscribe and I'll go in depth with more. And if you want to read it, I'll put a list in the description. Yeah, interesting book, not going to lie. Kind of sad he didn't get more airtime because I think Americans should really be more aware of this. Bye-bye. <laughs>